Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. Ephesians 1. How many of you have ever sat down to study a book? Is that echoey? It's okay. How many of you have ever sat down to study a book that Paul wrote and just felt after about reading three sentences that, oh, that's good for a month or so? It's, it's kind of like uh, you read C.S. Lewis or some guy that's really incredibly smart talking about God, and you're like, my brain hurts after like five or six seconds of reading, and I need someone to just massage my temples. And even if it's good, it's like it hurts really good. I have, I have this theory, you know, it says that uh, Peter, and, Peter and John, I believe, that uh, when they went before the court in Acts, we covered this scripture last year, that uh, they said, what are, what are these uneducated men doing? But we sure know they've been with Jesus. Right? So it never said that, like, eventually they seemed educated. It was pretty obvious those guys were never educated. They were really good at fishing. But they'd been with Jesus, which is awesome. Paul, on the other hand, murdered people. But uh, he was really smart. And he was really well-trained. And he knew the law really well. And not ironically, he wrote a good chunk of the entire New Testament. Peter didn't. Go figure. So anyway, I'm going off on that tangent because uh, I feel like Peter trying to uh, do a sermon based on Paul's writing where you just don't feel qualified and the more you read, the more you study, the more you're like... Wish I had one verse and not like a lot of them. So, do we have this thing up there? Let's go to, we're going to read it, um, the first 14 verses or so. Ephesians, to give you a little brief backdrop, uh, Paul wrote not to a specific church, so they say most of his letters are to a specific church. Ephesians, they think, was probably supposed to go to the region where Ephesus was, and it was probably a letter that was circulated to quite a few churches, and it was meant to do that. A lot of the letters that went to specific churches were also circulated, but this letter was probably written just for that purpose. With that, we see in Ephesians, not maybe the fullest or most, um, you know, grandiose theological exhortation from the Apostle Paul. But what we do see is something that uh, one scholar calls a bird's eye view. Any of you big picture thinkers like I am? You like to see the big picture? Well, even if you don't, again, about three of you, no one likes the big picture. This is going to be a really rough sermon. (laughs) How many of you that don't like it still appreciate it when it's really well done? Like... The reality is we need big picture and we need the nitty-gritty as well, right? So this letter, to give you an idea, was, was written kind of like a bird's-eye view of, of, of some of the major things of, of theology and of early Christian thought. So you, we have subjects such as God himself, the world, Jesus, the church, the means of salvation, Christian behavior, marriage and family, spiritual warfare, all contained in this four-chapter book. Are you exhausted yet? It's, it covers a lot. At the same time, though, it gives kind of a framework that I think is really interesting to get a really well-tuned look at 
what is Jesus? Who are we? And how do we fit into this whole thing of God's story that began from the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now continuing through to the Messiah? So let's read this first. Do we not have the, the do I, didn't I not send that? My bad if I didn't. Um, well, I'll let them go. If you don't get it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you. I actually want to read, I usually study out of the English Standard Version, but I actually want to read this out of the Kingdom Translation because it, it likes to emphasize in the Kingdom Translation um, different terms to describe Jesus. So Jesus Christ, that word Christ, encapsulates the term King, Christ, Messiah, and all of that into one. And oftentimes in some of the more literal translations, meaning that they try to keep consistent throughout the scriptures when they interpret a word, they'll continue using Christ, and you get, well, you lose some of the oomph behind what it's actually saying about who Jesus is. So pay attention as we, as we read here. The other reason why I'm reading this, usually with narrative or stories, I like to just tell them, because I like to tell stories. But this is not a story. Uh, Paul summarizes the gospel, but every word he has handpicked very, very carefully. And by the way, he's done this while writing in prison. He's in prison at this point, and, uh, which is a little bit ironic when you start to see what he is writing about. So let's, uh, let's start reading here and uh, have some fun. From Paul. And by the way, this is a different translation, so don't let it confuse you. The whole point is that you're reading the more familiar translation, and I'm reading one that's going to provide a little extra, extra something, something. So, verse 1, from Paul, one of King Jesus' apostles, through God's purpose, to the holy ones in Ephesus, who are also loyal believers in King Jesus, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus, the King, give you grace and peace. Verse 3, let us bless God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, the King. He has blessed us in the King with every spirit-inspired blessing in the heavenly realm. Doesn't that carry some power on it? Verse 4, he chose us in him. Notice how many times the phrase or something like in him comes up here. He chose us in him before the world was made, so as to be holy and irreproachable before him in love. He foreordained us or predestined us for himself to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus, the King. That's how he wanted it, and that's what he gave him, and that's what gave him delight, so that the glory of his grace, the grace he poured out on us in his beloved one, might receive its due praise. In the King, verse 7, and through his blood we have deliverance. That is, our sins have been forgiven through the wealth of his grace, which he lavished on us. Yes, with all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the secret of his purpose, just as he wanted it to be, and set it forward in him as a blueprint for when the time was ripe. His plan was to sum up the whole cosmos in the king. Yes, everything in heaven and on earth in heaven and on earth, in him. In him, we have received the inheritance. Who likes inheritance? Come on. It's kind of amazing. Not that someone died to give it to you, but that there's an inheritance that continues generation, generation, generation. 
Ramsey would have loved that point, by the way. Yeah. In him we have received the inheritance. We were foreordained to this according to the intention of the one who does all things in accordance with the counsel of his purpose. Verse 12, this was so that we, we who first hoped in the king, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you too, who heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed it, in him you were marked out with the spirit of promise, the Holy One. You were marked. The spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until the time when the people who are God's special possession are finally reclaimed and freed. This too is for the praise of his glory. Alright. Now, that was quite a bit of scripture. But it's really important to get kind of a flow of what, of what Paul's doing here. One of the things we want to do in this series is really emphasize and flesh out this concept of our citizenship in heaven. So oftentimes this concept of, of heaven and the kingdom and salvation get a little bit confused with why are we saved? So that we can go to heaven when we die, right? But that's not what Paul is saying. That's actually a concept that's only come up in the last couple hundred years. This concept that Christians are, are meant to just as many people as we can, saved from this earth, this big bad earth, so that we can get to heaven and enjoy our mansions for all eternity and leave this world to its filth and rot. Right? And somehow, when, when we see the world getting worse and worse and worse, it, it, for a lot of Christians, it gives us some kind of like satisfaction that, that the end is near, that we're getting closer to heaven or something like that, right? I think I've mentioned this before, that, that phrase. It's like, well, it's just a sign of the times, brother, right? That's, that's something that we toss around, but it's not actually biblical. Look at verse 10. I'll start in 9. Making known to us, this is back in the ESV, the ESV. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan... For the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All right, so here's the thing. We've got this concept. I first want to shout out to a couple scholars that I've been studying this week. Sometimes you just feel like completely inadequate to match some of the stuff that you read these guys saying. Just like Paul, some of these scholars are just incredible. So I'd, I'd like to give a shout out to these British guys, John Stott and N.T. Wright. I'll be probably quoting them quite a bit um, in some of their thoughts here. Um, so just in case anyone wants to accuse me of plagiarism, I've given them due credit. Okay. So one of the things that, that we need to realize is that this concept that we're going to leave this world and go to heaven. You've got to remember that the last great scene in the Bible is what? If you look at Revelation, I think it's chapter 21, it's actually about the new Jerusalem coming down. That new heavenly city, is it not? So that God's world is going to be one. In Jesus, here's the mystery, is that now, because of his death and resurrection, somehow that's already happened. 
And we as followers are called to live already in a world where heaven and earth have collided and come together once and for all. When it doesn't look like it, it causes us to question. Just like the did God really say. Questions are okay. But the reality is is that Jesus has finished something. We live in this tension of what is and what is to come. Christians are meant to make the world long for what's to come. We're not meant to threaten the world with what's to come. It doesn't mean that there's not judgment. It just means that we're not the judge. Our news is that we've been set free. That's the good news. And when the good news becomes our news, it looks a lot different than the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Paul thinks this is a really big deal. And I think understanding a little bit of the Jewish history and context of what he's writing into is going to help us see that a little bit. To illustrate... Horrible illustration. I've thought of some illustrations today. Usually I like my illustrations. I'm going to be honest. Today I'm not real excited about my illustrations. I'm going to use them anyway, though. You're welcome. Uh, I don't go to movies very often. Not because I don't like them. It's because I've got three children. Um, eh, Three. You could birth that little girl any moment, and she'd be fine. Got one on the way. Um, I'm going to quote a comedian now, so if you don't like him, brace yourself. Jim Gaffigan. I believe Dave had a post of him earlier this week. I don't know why it keeps coming up, probably because I'm on my third. Jim has, has had now five kids. When he had four kids, he made this joke, and it went something like this. Having, having four kids is kind of like you're, you're drowning. <laughs> Someone hands you a baby. And that's it. We're only about to have three, so we're good. We're treading water. So, um, anyway, I don't, see, I don't see many movies because of my, my children. But we did see one over the holidays, and it reminded me of how much I love to sit in a movie theater and watch the previews of the movies you're not about to watch. And, and listening to everyone's comments, like, I like the, cu- the couples that, that, that sit around you that are all snuggled up with, with their, like, $30 worth of popcorn and candy and soda, because he's trying to prove something, and, and they're like, oh, I want to see that one. It's like, let's see it tomorrow, in all of our free time. And, and uh, I, I may not even... At this point, I'm not even really paying attention to the movies. I'm like, yeah, that looks awesome. I'll probably never see it. (laughs) But isn't it amazing how you can watch a movie preview? This is actually turning into a better illustration than I thought, probably because I'm just thinking through all these things that I didn't plan on saying. So so this illustration has a point. The point is, is that movies, whether you like something or not, the whole point of a preview is to give you a foretaste of what's to come. They're never going to show you the whole clip. They may, not even, they may show you the best clip. 
And the whole point is to whet your appetite to go back and see it, to go back and get the whole story, right? So that's a limited illustration, right? Because sometimes the movie's horrible. And sometimes you can tell from the preview, this movie's going to be horrible, and I'm definitely not going to see that. That's kind of what Christians are like, though. There's some that people look at them and go like, yeah, I definitely don't want to see that ending. <laughs> yeah, what are you again? Christian, right. Let's try something else. Sadly, that's, that's, been, that's been common in, in history. That's changing. When Christians realize who they are and that much of their life and purpose on the earth is to demonstrate God's kingdom and what he's like, all of a sudden people start looking at your preview and they start wanting more. That, that can be literally a, more of an illustration of the example of what our life is meant to look like. We're meant to burn with an awareness and a demonstration of a kingdom that rises above just pure possibilities and what the hum, human spirit can accomplish with just human effort. We've got to keep doing the things of, of service and love and helping the needy and all the things that are absolutely vital as just living, breathing, loving human beings. But at the same time, we as a church have to realize that we've got the spirit of the resurrected Christ living and dwelling inside of us and resting upon us so the world can see light in the midst of darkness. So the world can see that there's hope. So the world can see that all things are going to be made right. The limits on this are usually on our end of the equation. Oftentimes this concept of it's already and not yet, I think I've mentioned this before, this is a huge piece in this, in this uh, passage. This concept that the kingdom is now and yet it is to come is one of the most uh, mysterious and yet vital elements that we can't miss. That, that term and that theology already, the kingdom is already and yet not yet, it was, it was never meant to put limitations on what's possible now. What it was actually meant to do was to get us excited about what is to come while we start to tap into it, right? So Jesus never said, go and do as I do, but yet you'll never do just like I do. And I've kind of capped you guys off here. I was kind of like, uh, you know, I was a million dollar a year earner. You're going to be kind of more like minimum wage. I've got you minimum wage, Holy Spirit. He didn't say that. I don't know why I'm using a money illustration on that. Again, my illustrations today, just kind of ignore them. He, he didn't give us a, a junior Holy Spirit. He didn't give us a lesser capacity. Our capacity is Jesus. We can't do anything of our own. We didn't, we didn't get him. We didn't get salvation because of anything we did. It's purely a gift. We're going to get into that in a second when I can shut up and get into the passage that I need to focus on. But I want this to be clear, is that you and I are here to burn with a demonstration of Jesus in the earth. All right. And the whole point of this in our citizenship is to realize why that's possible. All of Israel has hoped for generations and generations and generations to see this the presence of Almighty God 
outleashed on the earth to make all things right. Jesus is the key. All right, so let's get into actually something where I'm not blabbering. And I'm going to skip that. All right, so one of the questions you, you, you can look at in this gorgeous prayer, Paul here is praying, essentially. He's blessing them. And he's telling them, usually Paul begins his letters with a blessing or a prayer. This one is a really long one. In fact, verse 3 all the way to 14 is one long continuous prayer. In the Greek, it actually functions like one sentence. One poetic, long, run-on sentence. And if you notice, the entire prayer is woven through and through with this story of what God has done in Jesus the Messiah. Verse 3, he's blessed us in the king. Verse 4, he chose us in him. He foreordained or predestined us through him. Verse 5, he poured grace on us in him. Verse 6, gave us redemption in him. Verse 7, set his plan in him. Verse 9, intending to set up everything in him. Verse 10, we've obtained our inheritance in him. Verse 11, did I say I love inheritance? Because we have set our hope on him, verse 12, and have been sealed in him with the Spirit as the guarantee of what is to come, verse 13 and 14. Do you see why I like just preaching on one verse when I do Paul? It's just, it's a lot. But it's broad strokes, big picture, bird's eye view, okay? So, Thankfully, the other guys that are going to be preaching, Steve and Dave, are going to take care of all these details for us, so I don't have any real pressure on, on myself at the moment to get into too much of that. But I want to make a comment on this in Christ concept. All right? Jesus has acted for us in him. So when we're reading this concept and what Paul is trying to pummel in our heads is kind of like this concept of David the king. So if you know the story of David and Goliath, David went representing Israel to fight Goliath. So that when David fought, Israel fought. David's victory was Israel's victory. Right? That's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has fought a battle. He's won the victory. His victory is our victory. That's why it says we are seated with him in the heavenlies now. Because when God sees us, he sees his son. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It just means that we've been washed. We've been made clean. We've received what, what he deserved because he took what we deserved. That's the message of the gospel. It's made us a completely new person, a new man, a new woman, sons and daughters. We've been adopted. Meaning that when you read kingdom, it's all about family. God always speaks of things, not in this hierarchy like a corporation, but as a family. It's he's God the Father. It's, it's Jesus the Son. We're his sons and daughters. We've been ushered in, adopted, made like him, given his seal, stamped with his approval. We've been given all the things that God gave Christ. We've been given through him and in him. That's the privilege that we get to walk in. That should make your bad day a good day. Every day. Day by day. By day. Okay. So above all, as we do, meaning as we learn 
to walk step by step in Christ. We learn to worship God who has done it all in him. So this is actually Paul is worshiping God because of Jesus. God the Father is to be worshipped and exalted for all eternity. The new city is going to be lit up by Jesus the King. And this, this prayer is actually just worship. This whole thing that he's telling and rattling off what Jesus has done, he's worshipping God. You'll, you'll see that even in the closing um, statements uh, of this section. Paul is worshipping But Paul's great prayer here, it's actually a celebration of a larger story within which every single Christian story, every single one of our conversions, our hopes, faith, obedience, everything is all set in this celebratory, larger story of what Christ has done. Uh, Every time we minister to someone, we have a testimony of God healing this, setting someone free, someone meeting Jesus, just releasing hope, releasing love. It's all actually intertwined with this finished work of what Jesus has done. It's all a part of this ongoing story of humanity being restored to its original purpose. So, did anyone read this story and think about the exodus of Israel? I know that I definitely did not. I didn't see anything about pharaohs or Egypt or deserts or manna or anything like that. But, but one of the scholars makes this point, that when you're reading Paul in this section, one of the things you have to be aware of is that Paul is, he is actually pulling together all of Israel's history, and he's making kind of these legal references back at these stories. That every, not just Jew, but everyone that's reading Paul, or he's speaking to, he's going to give them an awareness of this. Because Israel's history is a part of everyone else's history. Because they were always meant to be blessed so that all the nations would be blessed. So the Exodus story, okay? Everyone knows, kind of, hopefully, if you don't, it's, it's all about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're what? They're supposed to be bearers of his promise or God's promised salvation for the entire world, right? Excuse me, I'm going to have to speed up a little bit, I realized. So brace yourself. So the rescuer of the whole creation humankind especially, God chose Abraham, he chose Isaac, and he chose Jacob. When Paul says that God chose us in Christ, the us is being the whole company of Christians, Jews, and Gentiles alike who have received Christ. And he's saying that those who believe in Jesus are now part of the fulfillment of these ancient promises. Remember Passover? That really dark holiday that the Jews still celebrate when all the firstborn Egyptians were, were killed by the, by the angel of death? Well, what happened in that story is that the, the Jewish people were told to put blood of the lamb sprinkled on their doorway and the angel would then know this, this house has a sacrifice over it not to touch that house. They warned all of Egypt to do the same thing. They didn't listen. This is what sparked uh, Pharaoh letting, letting the Israelites go after 400 years of captivity. Right? Redemption or deliverance is the word often used for that moment. God went to Egypt. He bought for himself the people that had been enslaved there for 400 years. 
That whole time they had this promise of what kind of nation they were going to be. This whole time they're there, we're God's chosen people, and yet we're in slavery. 400 years, the entire nation lives about a few hour drive from where they're supposed to be in utter bondage. Now again, in the fulfillment of the old story, the true redemption has occurred today. Let me read that again. Now, when we're thinking of now, this deliverance and redemption, what Paul is saying is, knowing this old story, the true redemption has occurred. Forgiveness of sins is the real deliverance. So I'm going to tie these two things together. So what Paul is saying is the, our deliverance is actually through the forgiveness of sins, from the real slave master, and it's been accomplished through the sacrificed blood of Jesus. So when he's talking about all this, these metaphors, He's actually relating back to what Israel has always known as part of their identity, right? Telling the story like this, the story of Jesus as the Messiah, the meaning of the death, this is actually fulfillment of the Exodus story and is a classic Jewish way of celebrating God's goodness. So what Paul is really doing here is just celebrating how good God is. Now there's this inheritance part, right? So look at verses 11 to 14. This basic inheritance that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was what? Money? We think of inheritance oftentimes as the stuff and the money these days, but back then it could involve that, but usually it was what? Land. We're going to Israel in a few weeks. This is a side. One of the things that blew my mind, they would show you the trees. Um, my wife and I went last, last year for the first time. And one of the things they show, show us on the land, they kind of went off and took us to a place that would look pretty similar to where Abraham would have been and the types of exact same type of trees he would have planted. They have trees there in Israel where you plant the seed and it takes, what, 20 or 30 years to bear fruit? Something like that? Longer. Right. However long a generation is. So it's like you plant a seed, and it's like you know that you're never going to harvest that seed, that fruit. I forget the story, but I remember, uh, I think there's a, a, a Jewish parable of something of the sort of, of someone that had these seeds because you could eat some of them, and they'd sow the seed in their hunger pains, knowing that they were planting seed for the next generation. They were never going to see it while they're going hungry. It's a beautiful picture. Even if you had all the the food in the world at the time, every time they planted one of those trees, it was a declaration to the next generation that this is for you. This is for you. This isn't for me. It's for you. Even the agriculture in in the land there is, is always speaking back of how God works for us and works in our lives and through us. But this promised land, the land that was promised to Israel, it was a big deal. And part of the Exodus story, therefore, meant that they were free to go off and claim that inheritance. So they get out of Egypt. They're free. Go claim your inheritance. The land, it's there. God's with us. And then it took another generation because all this stuff came out. They couldn't get out of this slave mindset. I wish I could go into that. Okay. So 40 years, they're in the wilderness. What are they led by? 
which was what? A cloud of fire, which was, which was the presence of God. So the entire generations, the entire nationality of Israel is moving based on the pillar cloud of the presence of God going before them, wandering them around this small little desert for 40 years. They've got this presence of God thing kind of down in terms of they understand what it is. We later see the tabernacle, which was the presence of God contained in that. You touch it, you die, not because he's angry, but because it's that. Uh, you cannot take it as a human being. They, they see the presence of God on a mountain. They didn't want anything to do with it. Moses, you go to it. We're freaked out. The temple, that's where the presence of God dwelt. And now, again, the new Jerusalem, scanning forward. Is there a temple? Is there a place that the presence of God dwells? What is it? It's us. That blows my mind. That's the place the presence of God dwells. It's really arrogant if it's not true. I'm just, I'm just saying. Uh, all right, so as I've kind of already gotten into, what is this new promised land and what's this promised inheritance? I already mentioned, in verse 10, it says that God's plan in the Messiah is to sum up everything in heaven and on earth. God has no interest in leaving earth to rot and making do for all eternity with one half of what he created. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. You and I are meant to be the sign. And what's the sign that he gave us? Let's flip to the end of, of the passage and read that again. In him, verse 13, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit, again, super big deal. I think much of the debate and the conflict in the church, especially in recent history, over the Holy Spirit is because it's such a big deal. Not to validate any of the abuses that have taken place, but I really believe that in the spiritual realm there is an onslaught battle for the reality of what we've been given to have an unadulterated, pure demonstration but we've only seen one absolutely pure and holy demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And that's been through Jesus. He's the only one that set a standard that was perfect. In all reality, we're probably never going to perfectly demonstrate him. So I'm going to get in trouble for this, which, which means that we have to be okay with things of the Holy Spirit that are a little bit tainted by human beings. I'm not advocating the abuses. Simply saying, we have to pick up on him 
and on the Spirit's work. And it's our responsibility as those who host the Spirit to not get distracted by an imperfect package. When we can start relating to one another without stumbling over the packaging, you're going to see a united church in Christ that's walking in power like we've never seen but have seen glimpses of. And we'll see an entire generation from young to old hosting something that could never be hosted on any one person except Jesus. It would crush us as individuals. It's why we're meant to be this unified, knit-together, wonderful working organism called the church. And it's how we're meant to do life. And it's meant to have impossibilities attached with the assignment. One of the best ways I've heard it put is like this. Christians often confuse their destiny with the assignment. The destiny being, we will go to heaven. The assignment is actually to bring heaven now. That changes perspective. So one of the things I want us to take away today is, what, how are our understandings of who we are and what we're meant to be, what our assignment is? How, how has an skewed view of my assignment infected my life to this point? And second, the Spirit is a guarantee. It's like this inheritance thing. Or if you gave a down payment on a house, you put 10% down, what are you saying? You're, you're giving the guarantee that you're going to pay the full amount, right? In the present, you're giving part of something that speaks to what's to come. That is what the Spirit is doing for us. It's speaking of what's to come. Every time we see the Spirit working, it's speaking of what's to come. It's imperfect because we're imperfect fallen beings, and yet we've been made new. We're made alive. We're seated in heavenly places. There's this colliding effect of fallen humanity and fallen creatures that are actually living with this reality in heaven that they're made new. And we, we stumble over that. It is, it is simple. It's just not, not complicated. That pretty much would solve most of our issues if we could get that straightened out, just in our own mind. It's, when I'm stumbling, it's not because I'm a dirty, rotten, horrible sinner. doesn't mean I'm not capable of sinning. It's just that that's not who my identity says that I am. I'm going to bring my wife up in a little, well, in a minute or two, and I want her to pray uh, that over you, that identity reality that she felt the Lord stirring on her heart this morning. And I want us to, to tap in to that heart of the Father again. Let him pierce you with his love. Let him pierce you with the reality of, maybe you've heard it a million times of who you are in Jesus, what he's made you be. It sometimes just doesn't feel true. Well, actually, it's, has it not always felt untrue at some point for everybody? That's kind of the whole point, is that it is too good to be true. It is impossible by human standards. This is the greatest gift ever given to mankind. And you and I get to walk in it and, and start to see it opened up 
for our entire life. And what we don't get to, we pass to the next generation and our kids. And what they don't get to, they pass until we usher in a pure and spotless bride. I might need to end there. How much time do I have left? Shaking his hand. I don't have time? Okay, great. (laughs) All right. I'm at the end of my notes, but I don't know where I've left off and what I haven't left off. So I think maybe we should... uh, hmm, Let's just stand, and why don't I bring you up? Do we have a microphone for her? Awesome. Um, oh, hi, it's loud. <laughs> just during worship today, I had my hands raised and was just saying, thank you for creating me. Thank you for creating me. And the Holy Spirit just dropped a thought in my mind and said, what do you usually say? And I said, I usually say, thank you for saving me. And he told me in that moment, I'm taking your revelation from sinner, being aware of what I don't have, to sonship someone who I've entrusted with every spiritual blessing in Christ, whose inheritance I've given in Christ with the promised Holy Spirit, who's there until we acquire it. Um, And I wrote this down. But just as a daughter or son, or my three-year-old son, if something that I'd given him, was rightfully given him as his parent, was snatched away from him, I would take it personally. I would be like, hold on. That's his. Stop it. Jesus came to destroy something. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And I feel like if anyone, if there's been part of your sonship, a revelation of it, not the actual, but, you know, the revelation, the outworking, has been stolen, or part of your inheritance you feel like you haven't grasped on has been taken, that today Jesus is like, you are my son. You are my daughter. My inheritance has been paid in full. Um, and I just have a feeling he wants to release that over us and take that us to that deeper level of encountering and living and walking out as his bride. So, Father, I thank you. I thank you that we are your bride. Holy Spirit, that you are promised, that you have sealed us. And, Jesus, I thank you that you came to give life and give it abundantly. So I just pray right now in Jesus' name for a breaking off over this body of anywhere the enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy our rightful knowledge, encounter, and experience as a son or daughter of the living God. And anywhere there's been an inheritance taken away, we just say repay back that sevenfold. Release that now. In Jesus' name. I felt like some, some of us just need to know that they haven't been forgotten. Sometimes we can hear the, the truth of Scripture about who we are in Christ, and it's just kind of impossible. I've done this, I've done that today, yesterday, 10 years ago, and it just feels like I'm not worthy. And that even if I was, like, he just doesn't remember me. I just 
want to pray that over you, is that you haven't been forgotten. And at the same time, I, I want some of us to stir up the things that, that we've forgotten. Stir up the things that he's placed in us to shine. It's okay to shine. It's okay to be a glorious church. It's okay to take risk. I feel like we're we're meant to be in a, a season where we start taking risks. Not being foolish. But we're we're stepping out into places and into ways of life that are that that are a little bit silly, that are a little bit awkward, that are a little bit stretching because in a, in a while he's going to want us to do things that are really stretching. But he never wants to not take you by the hand and help you along the way. He's with you. He's with us. One of the things I was reading this week is that, you know, Moses, Abraham, Gideon, all these great men of, of Scripture that accomplished these incredible things, they all wanted God to prove to them, prove that you're going to go with me. Why? Because that, ins- that assignment you just gave me, God, at the burning bush, says Moses, is impossible. Like, I think you're a little bit stupid, God, for saying that. He, I mean, that's kind of the language that he's using. You're an idiot for thinking that this idiot could do anything of what you just said. And I think a lot of us have... These, these stirrings and call in our life that we've kind of suppressed because we don't think that we're good enough. That's kind of the whole point is that you're not. Isn't that freeing? Is that you don't have to be good enough to carry out your assignment. He's got these incredible things for us to do in our homes, in our city, in our workplace, in every sphere of life. And if what you think that is seems kind of realistic, you haven't quite caught his drift yet. That's just kind of the, the cracked door. There's things he wants to do in and through you that you have hardly, that you might have in the back of your mind and in your spirit. Maybe you've had dreams about it. Maybe someone's spoken it over you. But I feel like we've suppressed it. And in this, this next season, I feel like he just wants us to take little steps. Let him show us that he's with us. So whatever that means to you, whether it's just being vulnerable, going to him and forgiving him, forgiving the Lord, forgiving Uh, not that he needs your forgiveness, but sometimes you harbor things against him in pain of what's happened in life. Just forgive. Forgive those who've hurt you. Get into community that that people can walk alongside you and help you in that. Maybe it's you need to take risk to see him show up in power. Man, I get excited when I hear the testimonies of what happened when groups just go out just to release love and evangelize the city. It's just absolutely humbling that some of the things that happen just happen because ah, you just took a risk so let's be a people that take a risk in the safety of family so Father we, we declare that we are a family that are willing to be vulnerable and to take risks we're willing to say that what is true of us that what you say in scripture our inheritance with whether it seems impossible or unbelievable or too good to be true or not, we declare with our spirits that we say yes. We say yes to you, Jesus. We say yes to our identity that's in you. 
say yes to our assignment that is impossible. And we make ourselves available to hear your voice. To give us that affirmation. To give us that direction. To give us that promised hope. Respond to the Lord with that, please. studying through Ephesians in Christ. It's going to be amazing. Thanks so much for... Sorry. Thanks so much for for joining with us today. And just want to say that we're going to have uh, a time of ministry up front. People who are willing to pray uh, with you, for you. Some of the things that Christian was speaking into, that that commissioning, that realizing of inheritance and and anything that we can stand with you for. And also, can I just say, if you're joining us today and and these things of Christ, these things of Jesus Christ are new to you and you you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, can I say don't leave today without coming up and finding one of us, anybody who's standing up here, we'd love in a very vulnerable, very, very easy way just to talk to you about that. Would Would you have that courage to come up? Um, we'd love that. And just before we go, Chris, I just um, had something on his heart he wants to share really quickly. Yeah, just praying this morning, going along with what Christian um, was preaching. Just I had a sense when I was praying to God this morning that some of you have been, there's been this hunger for more, but you've been sensing something. You've been sensing his presence, like I think very recently, maybe the last two weeks or so. And I just felt a stirring just to pray for you. There's a hunger that you want to go for more. And you, you know God's been doing something and you don't quite know what it is, but you've sensed his presence and you want to go further. Just to, for some of us, maybe we'll on, on that side, maybe uh, myself, Christian, maybe we'll pray for you guys. So just encourage from that. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Christian. Guys, thanks so much. Have a blessed Sunday. We will uh, see you this Wednesday night for prayer and for equipped courses afterwards. We'll see you next Sunday as well.